It was mentioned already this evening about the thrill, the joy that's each of ours to be able to come together like this, and certainly we're thankful for a second privilege on this first day of the week. It was our joy earlier today to assemble and to offer a worship unto God directed both in spirit and in truth according to the pattern and the demand of John 4.24, and now tonight we have yet another opportunity and how thankful we are for it. You may already notice on the wall both to my left and right that tonight's lesson will surround the topic of an overview of an Old Testament book. I hope that as uh, Connor read to us earlier tonight from the closing chapter of the book of the Song of Solomon, that you'll keep your finger open to that place, and tonight we'll be, be, be focusing really exclusively on that little book in the Old Testament. These opening comments may well give you some impression as to what led to the development of this lesson. Uh, many of you who are members of the ladies' Bible class who that meets here again every other week or so, you had a lesson a week ago yesterday that for a significant part of it, it was surrounding the book of the Song of Solomon. And it was asked if maybe we could at least invest a, le a lesson in this, and that is the result of the, the efforts for this lesson tonight. And so I hope that this lesson will be helpful. I hope it will be beneficial for all of us as we give thought to this little book in the Old Testament. You'll notice furthermore on that slide, it is not to say that the Song of Solomon doesn't pose its challenges. It's not to say it doesn't pose its difficulties. It has eight chapters, and one of the matters that's perhaps a bit perplexing on occasion is that those who are doing the speaking are not readily identified in most cases. Now, that doesn't change the fact that we at least can ascertain a great deal of what's happening, and we shall attempt to do that over the next few moments this evening. There are five books in the Old Testament that are in that section known as the books of poetry. It begins with the book of Job and it commences with the Song of Solomon. And tonight we're going to study a book that probably is not as often the subject of sermons as would be true of many other Old Testament books. As we close that slide, let's go ahead and then and appreciate the next one. According to the first verse of the first chapter of this book... Either Solomon wrote this book or it is a direct description of the events of Solomon's life. Again, as you can so readily read in that opening verse, it says the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. I would take that to mean that Solomon wrote this. But at the very least, it is critically related to the events of Solomon's life. Surely you can admit the following with me. As you and I look at the book of 1 Kings... In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, we are expressly told that Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. It thus may well be that this is one of the ones that he composed, the one of the songs that he wrote. Surely it's interesting to note that the Bible contains many songs. We noted that in the Bible class this morning, didn't we? As we studied in context Deuteronomy chapters 31 and 32, but isn't it interesting that among that array of songs, and it spans everything from Exodus 15, that great song of deliverance that the children of Israel, of course, sang, primarily the women, all the way to Revelation, chapters 15 and following. Singing has always, I suppose, been a part of that which is a means of expressing praise and homage and adoration to God. And so it is with the Song of Solomon. We appreciate that this particular song has a theme that is very rich, a theme 
a subject that is very interesting indeed. You may well notice that subject without a doubt is love. Now you and I know that love is of course lifted high in the Bible. It is a theme that is so many times presented. On the one hand, there's God's love for us, as He showed in the giving of His Son on the cross. On the other hand, there are many passages that encourage love between individuals, like a man to his wife. In fact, as you, as you and I come to the Song of Solomon, this particular song highlights true, harmonious, unchanging fidelity and love between a man and a woman. Now, I know if you look at very many particular writings of men on the subject of the Song of Solomon, you will on occasion read some that say it is an allegory that talks about Christ's love for His church. I don't believe that for a minute. I don't think that has anything to do with the Song of Solomon. This book, I can overwhelmingly, at least for myself, say it is a testimony of the love, human love, between a man and his wife. Love between a man and a woman as they court one another and ultimately lead to that point wherein they become man and wife. Perhaps as you come to the bottom of that slide then, you might note this with me. Chapter 8, verses 6 and 7 seems to me are the key verses in the whole book. Those two verses read like this. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be contemned. Do you get the impression that love's the key idea? That love is the key element that's going to really be the backdrop of all of the book? Sure enough, verse number 6 tells us, Love is strong as death. We're going to see something like that presented as the drama of the book of the Song of Solomon unfolds before us. But with that said, let's close that slide by this observation. Who are the principal individuals who are members of the plot presented in the book of the Song of Solomon? It is a plot that's very unique, at least in, in many ways. But among those we will encounter are a young Shulamite maiden. Not only that, her lover, her very carefully selected boyfriend. But now they weren't just beginning their courtship. They had already grown very close. There's also her brothers. Solomon plays a key role as a speaker on occasion. And finally, you'll notice several court women now, those court women may well have been already members of Solomon's harem. We'll get to those in just a moment. For right now, the next slide takes us deeper into our journey in the book of the Song of Solomon. I'm going to attempt to unfold the drama chapter by chapter. And so, you'll notice initially, I thought we would encounter some of the following observations. This is an overview that begins our consideration it starts as follows. There was a maiden lady. She, in fact, is a Shulamite. I gather that from chapter 6, verse 13. 
In fact, she is addressed there twice in that verse as the Shulamite woman, the Shulamite maiden. And immediately we begin to ponder, what does it mean that she is described this way? Here is what appears to be a reasonable conclusion. There was a town situated about 45 to 50 miles north of Jerusalem. It was known as Shunem, S-H-U-N-E-M. And you'll notice it was only about five miles south of Mount Tabor. It was situated in the land allotment to the tribe of Issachar. And this was a well-known place. It, in fact, was quite frequently traveled to. Many in that area would journey to that location because it had some beautiful scenery and it also had some very nice, pleasant things even in other ways. But surely one of the things we can conclude this lady appears to have been a resident in that area. But the next statement is this. According to chapter 6, verse 9, it appears she might well have been the daughter of a widowed mother. In other words, her father may well already have passed away. But be that as it may, according to chapter 6, verses 9 and following, she was in love with a shepherd boy, likely also with that same area. I would ask you to notice, and we'll appreciate it a few times throughout, she on occasion makes note of the fact that his flock, so he apparently tended a rather sizable flock of sheep, and not only that, she described him, as we'll see in a moment, in ways that were typical of a shepherd. She was in love with him. Now take note from verse 9 of chapter 6, though, she was still pure. She hadn't slept with him yet. And that purity, in fact, was something that was going to capture the imagination of even none other than King Solomon himself. From chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it appears to have been the springtime of the year. The flowers were beginning to bloom and the coldness of the winter was past. The earth and the things surrounding it spring back to life. And often in the mindset of a young man, he will turn his attention to that beautiful woman whom he has grown to cherish and to love. And it seems this shepherd boy also was beginning to feel the same. But we begin to quickly notice that another man enters the scene, none other than the king himself. Now by this point, Solomon was the king of Israel. David, his father, had already died. And Solomon, inasmuch as he was now king, you and I well remember that these statements at the bottom are to be quickly noted. As king, Solomon, of course, had the right to pretty much do whatever he wanted. He could vacation where he liked. He had homes and, it seems, places of visitation in many, many places around the kingdom. It's a bit interesting then in that light that the very last statement now comes before us. As those who were students of the Old Testament, it doesn't surprise us. Solomon was a man of many women. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, numbers taken directly from 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3. I would ask you to notice, though, that something unusual is stated in this book. Could I ask you to appreciate verse 8 of Song of Solomon 6? That verse says... There are threescore queens and fourscore concubines and virgins without number. 
Again, the text says three score queens. Now, three score would be 60. That would appear then to say that at this point, Solomon was still collecting his harem. That is to say, ultimately there would be 700 before he's done. Right now, there's yet 60. He's in the process of selecting maidens who shall be those ladies, his wives, if you please, the members of his harem. Now, it goes on to say in that same verse, fourscore concubines, that's 80. Now, remember, ultimately there will be 300 of them. It also goes on to say, virgins without number. That appears to be a statement, a suggestion that he is now collecting these beautiful ladies. These women who will be brought to his palace, they will be given the opportunity to remain there, and if they so choose, they will become permanent members of his harem. This Shulamite woman, she captured Solomon's attention, and she's going to begin to be the first one occupying the drama of chapter 1. And so now, let's chapter by chapter focus on the elements that are now set before us, looking at the interesting scene of things. Chapter 1, I have made a few comments like this. We have initially these statements. The Shulamite speaks first. As she does, she makes observations about herself for the following reason. She, you see, is brought to Solomon's tent. In other words, as she captures his attention, he has her brought for he likes the way she looks. And he wants to make her a part of the harem, the women, the queens, if you please, that shall be his. But as chapter 1 opens, you and I are called on to note this. She, in speaking of herself, says she's very dark. She's very suntanned. She even calls herself black, but now that's not a reflection on her being a member of the Negro race. That rather identifies the fact that she, by her brothers, has been forced to work out in the fields for, again, quite some time. That may be another reflection on the fact her father already had passed away. Be that as it may... You notice that inasmuch as she had given herself to that work, according to verses 4 and following, she had neglected her own appearance. There appears to have been a natural beauty to her, but she had not, if you will, put on the airs of her own appearance. She hadn't fixed her hair in the way she might have. She didn't wear all the adornments of jewelry and otherwise. She'd been a working woman. But you'll note that she learned something. Remember, she had been brought to Solomon's tent, but her heart was not with Solomon. She loved that shepherd boy. Notice that she learns in verse 7 where his flocks are. And so she's sure that she knows where he is. You can well imagine the anxiety that may well have filled her heart. She had been forcefully taken, may I say invited with a bit of aggression, to come, for the king has asked that you arrive. Well, even though she may well have gone much against her will, her heart was still with her, with the one that she loved. That leads me to note the closing statement then on chapter 1. She had been brought to Solomon's tent, and he begins to woo her, to impress her with the money, with the other things that would be characteristic of living in the palace. And as he woos her in that way... She appears to leave. 
She wants to be where her lover is. She wants to be where that shepherd man is. And hence, she leaves and she goes to enjoy some time with him. At that point, we close chapter number 1. And chapter number 2 immediately comes before us. And you'll note the first comment I would ask you to appreciate. She begins now in chapter 2 to describe this one who is her boyfriend. Not Solomon. She doesn't describe Solomon. In fact, would you take note, and if you like to take notes in your Bible, the description that she gives in chapter number 2 couldn't possibly be of Solomon. She describes him in ways that would make no sense for a king. For after all, beginning in verse number 1 of chapter 2, she mentions the banqueting house. Now Solomon lives in a palace, not a banqueting house. It's not a place like that. Again, it doesn't seem to fit to even give thought that she's describing again Solomon. Furthermore, we do quickly learn in verse number 7 that she did return. Now, probably that was due to the fact that she would have been looked upon in a very, very negative light. Here the king invites you to come. You stay a day or two and then you run away. He likely would have had her forcefully brought back. In verse number 7, you'll notice she returns and enters into conversation with the court women. The other ones who are perhaps already members of Solomon's harem, they begin to speak with this young girl who now had come their way. Basically, they make this insistence. Would you note with me verse 7 of Song of Solomon 2? I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love, till he please. We will encounter that statement verbatim several times in the book, and it is a statement in which she speaks to the court women. They, you see, were encouraging her, don't you know what you've got here? You will live in the lap of luxury all the days of your life. You'll have fine meals every day, all the ornaments, the jewelry you ever want. Solomon can give it to you. They're encouraging her, be thankful that you're here and live it up. Give Solomon everything he wants. And she says, oh, you women, don't encourage me to do this for I love not Solomon. I love him, that shepherd boy that lives not here at the palace. Her heart, you see, was still solely attached to that one whom she had grown so fond of. As you and I journey forward in chapter number 2, she proceeds to explain why her brothers put her to work in the fields the way that they did. Note with care verses 15 and following. I'll begin reading in verse number 14. O my dove that are in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs, let me see thy countenance, Let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth feedeth among the lilies until the day break, and the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bether. As you and I close that slide, you'll notice in that that we just read, she expected her lover to come visit her. She expected him to come to this place where, where again, she then was in the tent. 
But that leads us directly into chapter 3. Because in this chapter, you'll notice a rather dramatic statement that begins it. Though she expected him to come, he did not. Chapter 3, verses 1 and following. In fact, could I ask you to notice, she again leaves to search for him. Maybe she was rather agitated by the fact that she felt sure he would come. Maybe he was ill. Maybe something had happened to him. She doesn't tell us that, but at least we're told this. She leaves to seek for him, and she finds him. Now, what happens next? She is able to enjoy not only a pleasant conversation with him, but also a time of very pleasant freeness. She's no longer forced at the tent. She's no longer in the environments of the surroundings with which she's not comfortable. The second statement is this. She now, you'll notice, and I injected this rather strongly from verse 5, after that brief little visit with her lover, verse 5, she now is back at the tent where Solomon wants her to be. And verse 5 reads like this in chapter 3. I charge you, O you daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that you stir not up nor awake my love till he please. She wants to marry the shepherd boy. She wants to spend her time with him and her life with him, and yet these other ladies are encouraging her. Don't you understand what Solomon is offering you? You can be a member of the royal harem. But that doesn't interest her. It doesn't interest her. And so in chapter number 3, we now learn, beginning in verse 6, that it's time for Solomon to return to the capital. Remember, Jerusalem is the capital city, and for whatever reason, he was here in the northern district. Maybe he had spent the wintertime there. Whatever the case is, verse 6 now reads like this. Who is he that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchant? Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. Threescore valiant men are about it of the valiant of Israel. I'll pause at that point to notice there is a caravan, a parade if you please, in which this group is carrying Solomon's things back to the capital. Notice he even had several men that had to carry his bed. It was so lavish and big and ornamental. Not only that, in the next verse there are men carrying swords. Again, Solomon's group is on parade headed back to the capital. And guess what? The maiden girl is taken along too. Now she has been in Solomon's tent here for some time, but now Solomon's group is headed back to the capital city. And so the plot thickens somewhat like this. Chapter number 4 is where we now come next. In chapter number 4, you notice this with me. Now the scene is at Jerusalem. Solomon and his group have arrived in that city. And immediately the following event takes place. Solomon tries to win her love. Oh, he impresses her with language and description. He heaps upon her all that she will enjoy as a member of the royal harem, as one of his wives. Some of the descriptions, in fact, for you and I, I suppose, seem strange. I'll not read all of them, but just let me point out a few of them. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Behold, thou art fair, my love. 
Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn which came up from the washing, whereof every one bare twins and none is barren among them. And in the verses that follow, Solomon describes not only her hair and her, the other features of her appearance, like her lips. You'll notice he describes her neck in verse 4. He describes other parts of her body in verse 5. As you look at that, my suspicion is most ladies today would not be impressed with that kind of language. My suspicion is for a man to try to woo a woman by describing her hair as like a flock of sheep or her neck is in other ways like this. My suspicion is they would be unimpressed. And my suspicion is much would likely no longer occur. A good night kiss likely would not be yours. But to be that as it may, let me say that notice again, Solomon was the king. And he would describe things, of course, that in his mind were very impressive things. Remember, Solomon's dad had been a shepherd, David. And Solomon was well acquainted with sheep and with goats. And he was well acquainted with the other attributes of life like that in Israel. Not only that, in verse number 4, mention is expressly made of the Tower of David. Again, I would anticipate that most women would not care for having their neck likened unto the Tower of David. But now for Solomon, that was a matter of strength, and it was a matter that had wisdom attached to it. Solomon was, in his mind at least, complimenting her. These things that were matters that were impressive to him, would you again notice that often men and women might well look upon things differently. My guess is she wasn't impressed, but he was. These were meaningful things to him. That leads me to make these observations. I'm going to interject this at this point. I will invite to see what you think about it. Later in the book, Solomon is going to describe her again. And when we get to that point, we will again observe something. He often describes her in a strong likeness to an animal. Notice what he did here. Goats, sheep. In the next two chapters, he's going to do it again. That leads me to make this conclusion. It would seem that Solomon, though a king he was, and though the son of David he was, he was a man who did not appreciate the treasure that is a woman. He didn't see her for the delicate creature that she is. He didn't see her in light of passages like 1 Peter 3 verse 7. He saw only one to be conquered, only one to have. Men ought not look upon women that way. They're not an object to be possessed. Solomon appears to have looked on women that way. He wanted to have them. He wanted to possess them. He wanted to, be, to belong to him. That's going to get him in trouble, by the way. And ladies, search you out a man. If he looks upon you as an object to be possessed, run from him. He's not a man to be trusted. He's not a man to be honored. And he's not one you want to give your hand in marriage to. At this point, this woman was wiser than Solomon was. Now, we know that Solomon was often lifted high for his wisdom. That was earlier in his life. 
He isn't as wise now as He was then. Let's read on. In fact, let's close chapter 4. You notice that her shepherd lover does come. Now notice, he's traveled a good distance because she is now in Jerusalem. And yet he makes this journey from Mount Tabor all the way to where Jerusalem is. The last statement in verses 9 to 16 is, it would likely now be the case that he wouldn't be free to just come into the palace. Right? You don't go into a, you don't walk up to the White House and just walk on in. Right? There are security guards all around, and if you and I try that, we'll probably end up in jail. Well, here, this shepherd boy wasn't free to just come into the palace where, where his girlfriend was. But it does lead us to notice he does send her a message of love. He gets a message into her, and that message closes chapter 4. In fact, would you notice, I'll not read all of it, but you'll notice in verses 11 and following, a beautiful description that He gives of her. And would you be impressed, He doesn't describe her like a flock of goats or a flock of sheep. That's nowhere to be found in His description. He describes her as a beautiful garden, verse number, verse number 12. He describes her as a very pleasant perfume, Verse 13, he describes her again in a very beautiful smelling way in verse 14. Do you see the difference? Solomon describes her as goats and sheep. Her shepherd lover describes her as a beautiful and lovely, pleasant flower. There's a lot of difference in describing a woman that way. Which do you think she would have preferred? To ask that is to answer it, isn't it? But as you and I close the fourth chapter, it does bring us to chapter 5. As we turn the page into that chapter, you notice that they are able to be together as chapter 5 opens, apparently very briefly. Apparently it's not able to last very long. The means by which that happened is a very sweet description, though isn't it in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 5. But you'll notice that beginning in those very same verses, the scene now changes and she has a dream. You'll notice she says in verse 2 that she sleeps. As she sleeps, she has a dream. Now, on many occasions in the Bible, we remember that there are dreams that are presented. And quite often, God, of course, reveals things. Now, this seems not to have been anything like that. But she does relate the elements of the dream. I would ask you to notice in that dream, she longs for her shepherd lover. She doesn't dream about Solomon. She doesn't dream about the palace or anything that Solomon has offered her. Her mind is still firmly fixed with the one whom she's so fond of, this shepherd boy, this lover that she is so very crazy about. And by the way, he's also crazy about her. As you and I continue on, you notice in the dream she longs for him, but she's not able to find him. Have you ever had a dream where somebody you're really close to and something is happening and you wake up in a sweat because you wanted to help but couldn't? It seems like this dream is somewhat like that. You'll notice she doesn't find him. But as she looks for him, there are others who are in fact keeping her from him. They even beat her. Have you ever had a dream where again you're on the lookout for something and you just can't ever seem to get where you want to be? 
that's like this dream. Maybe one more thing. She wakes up. And then she charges those women in the same way she has before. The same women who in fact insist, don't you want to be with Solomon? And don't you want to in fact enjoy the life, the luxury that's here? And one more time, could I ask you to notice in verse number 8, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if ye find my beloved, that ye tell him that I am sick from love. You'll notice that may well insist that she doesn't have the freedom that she once had enjoyed. Maybe those trips away from the palace are now keeping her a bit closer at hand. She tells those court ladies, if you see my shepherd lover, would you tell him I love him? Would you tell him I'm crazy about him? Now notice that couldn't be Solomon, for they could see Solomon any time they wanted him. She insists, if you see my beloved. At that point, you and I now, observing in verses 9 to 16 as that chapter closes, she now answers a question for those court ladies. They now get to the heart of the matter. Why are you so crazy about him? Why is he better than Solomon? She begins to describe him. Again, I won't read all of it. But verse number 9 begins like this in chapter number 5. What is thy beloved more than another, than another beloved? You see the question they're asking? What is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? You can hear what they're saying. Why are you telling us to stay quiet as we encourage you to enjoy your life with Solomon? What is this shepherd lover you're so crazy about? Now she begins to describe him. My beloved, verse 10, is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. Do you remember the description of David? Remember when Saul was first becoming acquainted with David, he described David as ruddy, and David was a shepherd. One more time, note, this, this young man's a shepherd that she's in love with. Let's read on. He's the chiefest among 10,000. He had won her heart. There wasn't another like him. Note the next verse. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. His hair was black and he was very stately. You'll notice the next verse reads, His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. Now you may remember early in the book of Genesis, there was a description of that oldest daughter of Laban. Her name was Leah. She was tender-eyed, remember? This shepherd boy was not tender-eyed. His eyes were strong, perhaps very dark and black, and in no ways problematic with eyesight. Let's read on. Verse 13, His cheeks are like a bed of spices as sweet flowers. His lips like lilies dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. She's crazy about him. As she describes his cheeks and as she describes his lips, he had captured her heart like no other. His hands, verse 14, are his gold rings set with beryl. His belly is his bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. Now notice the King James word there for belly is more correctly his body. 
as she imagined and envisioned him, he was a strong and stately fellow. And remember, just like the shepherd boy David had had to beat both a lion and a bear, who knows what this shepherd boy had often fought off to protect his sheep. As you and I close that chapter, you notice that we close chapter number 5 with this beautiful description. Did you notice she didn't describe him like flocks or sheep either? just like he didn't describe her that way. On into chapter 6 we go. At this point, the court ladies now speak again, and they ask a question, verse number 1. Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? You'll notice this Shulamite woman was apparently a very beautiful lady. They call her the fairest among women. Whither is thy beloved turned aside that we may seek him? They were so impressed by her description of him that they were excited to help her find him. Aren't you impressed with this drama? A play unfolding like this. The opening part of chapter number 6 now brings us to notice that Solomon speaks again beginning in verse 4. Remember Solomon the king? Now he had tried to woo her back in chapter 4. He had in fact described her in those ways that we agreed weren't terribly impressive from most women's perspective. He's going to try again. Beginning in verse 4 of chapter 6. Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. What do you think so far? Is he successful? Earlier it was flocks of sheep and goats. Now... She's described as Terza, a city. She's described like an army. Verse 5, Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead. Thy teeth are as a flock of sheep which go up from the washing, whereof every one beareth twins, and there is not one bared among them. That's almost verbatim the same thing he tried in chapter 4. Almost verbatim. He's trying it again. Now, he does begin it a little differently. That, that's true. You'll notice on the slide in verses 4 through 10, it would seem he's beginning to realize something. I read it so that you could appreciate it with me in verse number 5. He tells her, Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. It would appear from that language he's beginning to sense that his, her heart is not with him. He's tried. He has shown her the palace grounds. He has impressed her with the fullness of the harem and all that his money is able to offer, but she is not impressed. You'll notice in verse number 9 this statement is made. Now again, he makes note of the fact he's already got queens and concubines and virgins, but look at his description of her in verse 9. My dove, my undefiled is but one. I can't help but see in that he was impressed with her purity. She hadn't been with any other man. She stood alone. A pure woman is a precious thing. Now that's true in many ways of a man too. Don't you remember the description of the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31? Back when Solomon was wise, he said her prize is far more than rubies. 
And over the next few verses, he described the blessing of the virtuous woman. Here, Solomon saw in that Shulamite woman, the Shulamite girl, the purity that he longed for and the sweetness and the innocence that he wished that he could have. But he, he, he could never have her heart. You'll notice beginning in verse number 10, the description that you and I begin to see kind of an amazing thing and also a bit sad that this purity that was in her, her heart was with that shepherd lover. Let's close that slide by noting that we now notice an appeal. Solomon is apparently making ready to release her. He can't have her. She is never going to be happy with him. And she's now going to, he's going to release her. And you'll notice in light of that, the chapter closes... That's chapter 6, verses 10 and following. Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? I went down into the garden of nuts to see the fruits of the valley, and to see whether the vine flourished in the pomegranates. Or ever I was aware, my soul made me like the chariots of Amenadab. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon thee. What will you see in the Shulamite? As it were, the company of two armies. Solomon's making ready to release her. And it's as if the city of Shulam is happy to see her return, excited that this pure lady, one who was formerly of that very place, is now delighted to come back to that location. As you and I close this sixth chapter, it prepares us then to journey into the last two chapters. And also our last slide of the night. Chapter number 7 is a very brief chapter, only 13 verses. And it starts like this. Solomon, it seems, makes one last gasp. He has, in fact, appeared to recognize the fact he's going to have to release her. But he has one final hurrah, one final attempt. Now this time, he does change his tactic. He doesn't so much use sheep and flocks of goats anymore. He tries to be sensual. He tries to be rather sexual in his language. I won't read it, but if you want to read the first few verses of chapter 7, he portrays her body in various ways, and he describes those attributes of her, and he does this with an attempt maybe to excite the sensual aspect of her and to bring her to realize that she can enjoy this on and on if she would only agree to stay at the palace and to be one of his women. But you'll notice she rejects his advances. Let me say that again. She rejects his advances. In verse number 8, she says, I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I'll take hold of the boughs thereof. Now also thy breast shall be as clusters of the vine, and the smell of the nose like apples, and the roof of thy mouth like the best, wine for my beloved, that goeth down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. That's the last thing it seems Solomon had to say. The last thing in his attempt, now look at how she reacts. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. Solomon had tried his best. He had in fact not only described the other attributes of again, 
flocks and sheeps and things. He now tried to describe her body in a very inviting way. She wasn't interested. She said, I am my beloved's. Her heart was still with him. Nothing that Solomon had said and no attempt that he had made had left any impression at all on her that was anything pleasant. At that point, Verses 10 to 13 close chapter number 7. And in it she describes her shepherd lover again in her desire and excitement to be with him. My heart is still his. Have you ever known someone who maybe though a man and woman had grown so fond, perhaps something forced them to be apart for some amount of time. Maybe military service on the part of the man, work duties on the part of one or the other. And they are so thrilled when they can come back together and enjoy one more time, an extended time of togetherness. As chapter 7 closed, she's already looking forward to the reality of that very thing because Solomon's now released her. Into chapter 8 we go. She now expresses a strong set of feelings to she wants to publicly express her strong feelings for shepherd lovers. She wants to kiss him in public. Now, there are times you and I recognize that even married people often don't show their affection in public quite so much due to propriety and other considerations. She is now so overwhelmed. She's been apart now from her shepherd lover for a while, having been taken to Jerusalem. She can't wait to be back with him. And she even says publicly, I'll be happy to kiss him. I would suggest that you and I might notice in verse number 5, she does get back home. She comes back to Shulam. And you'll notice there's a beautiful refrain of commitment and loyalty. And with that, the curtain in many ways closes on the book we call the Song of Solomon. I would ask you to again notice a great lesson, perhaps a couple of great lessons we've just learned. I've tried to summarize them as we go to one brief final slide. That slide closes with a loving statement of peace between that, that Shulamite maiden and that lover. But I would ask you to be impressed with two lessons, and due to time, we'll, we'll be brief about them. Lesson number one is, although we often are impressed with men like Saul and David and Solomon, this book does not give us a glowing impression of Solomon. Although he was the king... He much too, looked too much on women like objects to be possessed. He looked upon women as a thing and not as a human being, not as someone to be appreciated. And so all of those first slides, those first statements on that slide, I think would be fair descriptions of this. But the second point is this one. Would you be impressed with commitment and fidelity? Solomon had a lot of women, and he tried to get another one, but she wasn't interested. Don't you find it interesting that here was the king, and yet here was a little shepherd girl, and she showed much more commitment and fidelity to her shepherd lover than Solomon showed to any of his women. She was committed to him, and even though Solomon made his best attempt, he couldn't have her. She wasn't interested in him. Her heart never veered from that shepherd lover, that shepherd boy. The main lesson of this book then is fidelity, commitment, love, 
And that's what God would wish a husband and his wife to know. And although there will be attempts in the world, perhaps by some who are ungodly and wicked, to capture the attention of one or the other of them, may we be like the Shulamite woman, committed to our, our, our significant other, committed to our husband, our wife, and to be committed in a way in which that is expressed and shown in all the ways of allegiance and fidelity. There at the bottom, you'll notice that principle is echoed several other times in the Bible. In Proverbs chapter 5, in Hebrews chapter 13, in Matthew chapter 5. And with that, the curtain closes on the Song of Solomon. All that we'll do is close our lesson like this. It's been our goal to study the book, to highlight its main thrusts. And I trust we've done that with reasonableness and in the time allotted to us to be impressed with how Solomon failed. He couldn't have this, this lady. Her heart was with another. And so it is, as we close that slide, that lesson is a powerful one for us. Husbands are taught to love their wives, Ephesians 5.25. Wives are taught to love their husbands, Titus 2 verse 4. And that love is to be a bedrock thing, is to be strong and unmovable. Tonight, I hope we've been impressed again with the biblical teaching of love, even as seen in this drama that unfolded in the book we call the Song of Solomon. Tonight, maybe there's someone in the audience who is not right with God. You'll notice throughout all the Bible, the greatest love story ever told is God's love for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And as He distributed that love to us by way of Christ's death on the cross, if you are separated from the God of heaven tonight due to sin, as an alien sinner, come to Him at once, wouldn't you? Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. But if you become a Christian and you haven't been faithful, come back to your first love because that's the only way to go to heaven. If we could pray to God on your behalf, if we could make observation and note of your confession and repentance, we'd be delighted to do that. If we could help you tonight in either of these ways, we invite you to come at once. While together we stand and while we sing.